We're getting everyone. It's Wesley here from Business Blessings, and we want to welcome you to episode four of our podcast, Sacrificial Succession. Uh, we're going to talk about true succession today, Paul. It's great to have you back again. Well, thanks for having me, Wes. It's uh, it's a real honor and pleasure. Uh, we we're talking before, and I felt, uh, and I said to you, I feel like we're a, a slow-moving glacier with this. The we are going in depth and taking time, but it brings about very significant change as we go forward uh, with this. Um, so, but it's good. And I, I'm certainly enjoying it. And I trust that those listening to it will get a lot out of it as well. Paul, the, one of the philosophers that you looked at when you did your research was John L. Williams. Do you want to talk a bit about him and, and yeah, his he's very interesting. You know, his, his sort of, his, in, his insights um, because what he did was he asked the question, you know, philosophically um, what makes true succession. And he used an interesting example from history where um, Confucius and Mencius, their Chinese, um, our Chinese scholars and you know, Confucius is probably recognized as one of the wisest sages um, who ever, ever lived, say, apart from Solomon, perhaps. And Mencius, or in the Chinese, Mengzi, uh, he was regarded also as being a great um, sage and, and philosopher of his time. And so even though they weren't uh, directly related um, Many of the writings of Mengzi seem to be influenced by Confucius. And so what John L. Williams did was he asked sort of the rhetorical question, even though the, the, um, Confucius didn't directly influence Mencius, um, Mencius still appeared from his writings to be strongly influenced by Confucius. And did that make it a true succession? And he drew the conclusion that really a true succession occurs only when the predecessor is directly influencing the successor. So that means it's a direct relationship. It's not an indirect relationship. A little bit like for those of us who are followers of Christ, um, his teachings continue to influence influence us today um well they better um however they they do directly influence us but our relationship is indirect other than the holy spirit is direct whereas the disciples of jesus's day were directly influenced and i think this is the point that john l williams is making so, so the key point really is that in true succession is that the successor directly influences, oh, sorry, the successor is directly influenced by the predecessor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the other point of that is that the successor is not a carbon copy of the predecessor. No, and he makes that point by using the example of Confucius and Mencius um, is that Mencius wasn't a carbon copy of Confucius, but he was influenced by him. 
And same with people who are directly influenced, you know, the disciples, they certainly weren't carbon copies of Jesus. (laughs) Anybody who (laughs) looks at how they live knows that. Um, And, and the same thing is we, we, we shouldn't expect. And in fact, we don't want to have carbon copies, but we want to have significantly influenced or directly influenced someone so that they can continue our legacy. And, you know, the best example I I think is our children. I don't want my sons or daughters to be exactly like me. That would be boring, but I would hope that they take on the best aspects of me and hopefully shed the ones that are not quite so good. (laughs) Yeah. Except you see the ones that are not so (laughs) good kicking, like throwing back in your face and you hang on a minute. I need to sit down and have a chat to them about this because yeah get them in trouble in the future yeah <laughs> yeah but then hey that's what that's part of what training your successor is about isn't it having some very real conversations about about who they are their giftings their strengths their weaknesses um and and working through those with them it is and and it's it's active too in the sense of it's working together you know we saw that in east timor and um you know, in the book, um, I mentioned I talk about Junior because he, what he did really well in preparing successes is that, you know, he walked with them. He worked with them. Um, it wasn't just sitting down and having a chat. That was important. But it was also on the job. He would take them with him into the field and they would do things together, you know, and Jesus did exactly the same thing with his disciples. And normally what they talked about then was in a sense, in retrospect of what they had done, he would point things out. So Paul, this goes against the CEO or leader who sits in his ivory tower for want of a better word uh, and directs people and doesn't allow people to get close to them. Like, um, it's interesting, some of the research I've been seeing um, during COVID is that um, employees have actually been seeing into employers' homes or their managers' homes, and suddenly this veil is broken down between them, which is, which is very interesting. They think, hang on a minute, this person's just like me, which is actually not, a, in some respects, it's not a bad thing. Um, it probably isn't. It's, it's a good thing. So it's, it's actually the leader opening up their life to the successor and spending time together, walking together. Hey, let's do this together. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, Zoom's a great leveler, isn't it? Um, it is. <laughs> perhaps why that's why they developed the blurred screen, <laughs> which I'm using. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, that that's what, you know, potential successors need to see they don't just need to see their predecessor or their leader in the times when they are completely in control of their situation. You know, what's often called a conspiracy of hospitality, as one of my mentors put it, is where powerful people tend to intentionally put themselves in places where they have the power 
for example, if anyone has worked in um, non-Western uh, cultures and societies in particular, almost all business is done around the meal. Yeah. Uh, it's often done in restaurants and whatever. And whoever, in a sense, controls the table, to some extent, controls the conversation. And there's no accident in that. Um, but the point is what people want to see is the authentic you, um, not just when I'm, you know, dressed to the max and I'm in control of my situation, but how do I deal with my family? How do I deal with people out in the field? That's where the real lessons um, for a successor come into play when they get to see just how, you know, I handle situations where I'm not completely in control. Which, you know, Paul, as a leader of an organization, how many times are we actually in control of what's, what's happening? Because things happen. Government changes legislation, staff leave, uh, a customer gets upset, suppliers change things, um, money gets tight. All those kind of things happen. It's how, how you handle those is really a true measure of who you are, but also a way of training people up. It is, but it's also how you're right, 100% right. Th these are all things that we have to deal with, especially as leaders. The question is, how transparent are we with potential successes about these things? Because what we often do is, we don't talk about these things. You know, um, I, I think, I'm sorry to say, but I, th I think churches in some cases are the worst at this. There are things that are obviously not going right and yet no one wants to talk about them. And it happens in business too. And one thing, you know, we saw in the case of our teams, especially in East Timor, where we learned a lot of these things, it was about being really open and transparent and being honest about things that were not comfortable, you know, that this is not going to continue forever, that there is going to be a point of handover, that we are actually thinking about this and we are going to do it and we are giving you a heads up an advance notice of this. These are all conversations that are not easy to have. And yet if we're transparent and honest and upfront about them, most of the time people can accept. That's just the reality that we have to deal with. But a lot of times we don't talk about it. Which to me, it doesn't make sense. And it, like, it, it aggravates me quite a fair bit. What we're talking about, because individuals know what happens in their own personal life. Like they know their finances don't always work out. They know relationships don't always work out. So when you've got leaders who are saying everything's fine and rosy and you're thinking, but how can that possibly be? Because does that mean that something's wrong with me because all these things are falling apart in my own life? Um, well, not necessarily falling apart may not be the, but, but happening, you know, because life happens. Um, yes. So it's about it being. Does. And I mean, the thing is, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not talking about it with them, they're talking about it themselves. Yes. And you know, this passage 
that was my real aha moment there in Matthew chapter 20. And there's a number of other cases, you know, the, the, the disciples are there talking themselves about who's the greatest. Yes. So instead of just letting them chatter and gossip among themselves, Jesus cuts to the chase and talks to them about who the greatest is going to be in terms of how he sees it and how he does it. And that's what we need to do because it's not like the conversations don't occur. Yes, that's right. Uh, They're being talked about. Jesus had the other benefit that his father was talking to him about what was happening amongst his disciples. But But at the same time, God speaks to us about those things too. Like I know there's many times where I've been working with somebody and, um, you know, I may be praying for a situation or something in the morning and God says, Hey, you need to bring up this issue or talk about this issue and, and go forward with that. And then you do, and you realize you've either stopped something from happening or maybe you've um, uh, like you, you know, prick the boil and let the pus come out and be able to deal with it and clean it up. Yeah. And that's why it's really important when we're in these positions of leadership that we are intentionally and actively listening out for dissonant voices. Um, When I did my um, doctorate and I was, it's a research doctorate and I was researching, it was about multinational companies. I used one of the companies I was working with as one of the examples working in very volatile places, what I call local conflict assessment. What the research showed me as I went through that was the vital importance of local knowledge or or what's called local intelligence. I don't mean intelligence in the sense of spies and things like that. I mean, listening out to local people who had their ear to the ground And they were able to tell us things that no amount of metadata sifting and high level, you know, um, insight uh, reports were able to give us about a situation on the ground um, like local people could. But if we didn't have the mechanisms in place that were able to, um, you know, capture that uh, input and those insights, and have that as part of our decision-making process, which a lot of organisations don't, unfortunately, because that was part of the work that I did in one of in my previous life was trying to help organisations anticipate these sorts of pitfalls, cultural conflict, crisis that tend to face them in countries that are volatile politically and socially. We're not exempt from them here either. No, we're not. Okay, so Paul, you talked about listening, but part of this key key to that is you actually need a close personal relationship between you and your successors uh, in doing that. But unpack what do you mean by a close personal relationship? Do you mean you're living in each other's homes? Do you, like like what does that look like? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and and I suppose for me, where I first learnt this or saw it being modelled was I grew up in very multicultural circumstances. Um, We lived in a commune of sorts um, with people of, you know, 
dozens of different uh, nationalities and ethnicities. One thing that my parents did probably better than any of, of the other people in our compound or complex was that they spent time with the local people much more than some of the other foreign people did. Eating with them, sharing meals together, talking. And so for me, as I grew up, some of my greatest mentors in life actually were tribal men who would then sit down and talk with me. They would then take me out hunting, take me out fishing into the jungle. You know, this tree does that. If you see this particular track, it's an indication of that. Sit down and have a meal together, talk together so much so to the extent I, my parents would give me a choice and say, well, you can stay with the nationals or the foreigners. It's your choice. We've got to go away somewhere. They traveled a lot. Um, my choice would be to stay with the nationals um, because I was comfortable with them. And one thing that you learn when you're dealing with people of other cultures, if you're uncomfortable with them, um, it's very difficult to establish a good rapport. And so what I mean by that is it's spending enough time with them in different circumstances where the aspects of their real lives come out. And to be honest, that's not often at work so that you can see who they are as people, which then helps them make a judgment about you and your qualities. And as a leader, it then helps you make a judgment about theirs. And so that's really what I'm talking about in terms of spending time with people. And everywhere we've worked in any of the projects that we've operated in, you know, that means us spending time with people, especially around the meal table. You know, it's interesting that Jesus did most of his business um, when it came to people around the meal table. And one of the comments that has been made by, I did quite a bit of work earlier on with international students. And when we asked them what the, was the number one thing that they found most difficult about Australia, and they said was that, you know, a couple of them said, we've been here for a year and we've never been invited to someone's home for a meal. Yeah. Um, and they said, that's what our culture's all about, yeah. where they came from. And so it's not easy because as Westerners in particular, we compartmentalize our lives. That's just the way we are. It's our culture. You know, I'm a professional at work. I'm this at home. I'm that in my spare time. Um, when it comes to many other cultures, Eastern cultures, the culture of the Bible, for example, they're not strongly compartmentalized. People share every aspect of their life with others, and there's very little personal space. And so as a predecessor influencing a successor, yes, unfortunately, I have to compromise my personal space. Yes. It's part you of that. So, of <laughs> so the, the importance of even the lunchroom table, seeing up the lunchroom table or taking them out to dinner or when you're going out, they go with you uh, or being intentional about setting up those times for them. And like, I know even, you know, my 
trips when we could travel to the US, which would happen again sometimes. Like it was always fascinating to me that it was very rare that we met someone in someone's home. It was always out at a restaurant or something, which was great. And you do that, but it was a very defined period of time. And again, you weren't being invited into their life. You know, it was kind of like you come so far. And, And I'm seeing that culture more and more here. Do you come over to someone's house or do you go out for a coffee? You know, those kind of things. It's it's thinking about breaking those things down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And being real about who you are. You know, one of my one of my mentors, it constantly reminds me that he said it's about being transparent about who you are. And that means basically exposing people to the person that you are through the situations that you allow them to be a part of, which includes your family. Yeah. You know, screaming kids, dirty lounge room. It's life. Uh, dust on, <laughs> on the mental board, so to speak, yeah. uh, doing those kind of things. Yes. It's about that. So Paul, you're a leader's in an organization. He's looking, he or she is looking, um, to how do I choose a successor? Like, do you think it comes up naturally? Do you start to spend time with people individually or maybe as a group and see what comes and what bubbles up naturally? Well, yeah, I mean, there's plenty written, you know, about how to train people, but actually there's very little. And also, you know, how do you do a psych test and personality test and whatever? Actually, there's very little written about this selection process. Um, And again, we learned this in uh, our projects, especially early on in East Timor because of the incredible difficulty that we faced with finding quality people because of the trauma, lack of education, ethnic conflict and and hatreds. Um, But what, what we did was we gave everybody pretty much the same opportunities to do things. Um, And like I've said a couple of times, you know, one of the key things that we looked for was someone's willingness to serve without any expectation. Doesn't mean we're, you know, we're giving people jobs to test them out. We just, this is what needs to be done. Just very interesting to see, you know, what happens. I'll give you an example one of the guys very early on that we just gave the opportunity to turned out to be a really good guy. Unfortunately, uh, over the longer term, he just showed a few moral uh, deficiencies that couldn't allow him to continue in that position of, of a, of a leader. But very early on, um, there's a lot of um, ethnic and religious uh, differences in, in, in East Timor. And so uh, him being from a Protestant church background, his neighbor was a Catholic priest. Um, and in that particular context, these two sides did not mix so well together. And one of the things that this guy did without being asked, without being told to do anything, one of the common practices in 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 asia is 
you sweep the front of your your front yard and your part of the street to keep it clean. And he went and he would go down and he would also sweep the front yard, not, not inside the yes, fence, yes. but the front yard and the street outside of the yes. Catholic priest's home. And so the result of that was that there were much better relationships between the two groups because everybody could see that what this guy was doing, he wasn't trying to exacerbate the situation. He was just being kind. And when we looked at that, we thought that's someone who will make a good future leader because no one told him to do that. He just went out and did that himself. And so initially it's not, we've found it's not making too much of an expectation around what type of person they are, what professional skills, all those things can come after. It's actually seeing how do they serve others when there's no expectation whatsoever of, you know, they're not, we haven't told them if you do this really, really well for a year, then you've got a shot potentially being a leader um that to, to me is a really important thing and then through the actual leadership um the way that they behave once they're given a leadership role and i'll give you another example of a guy that he he was pretty good actually like he served really well once he was into a leadership role he was really patronizing to anybody who is below him, but butter wouldn't melt in his mouth if he was going the other way to those that were above him. And I can remember saying to one of the leaders at the time, um, he's exactly the sort of person we don't want in as a successor. And until he changes, we shouldn't give him the opportunity. Unfortunately, they didn't listen to me. And um, he was a real pain, to be honest. Um, and thankfully, he moved on of his own accord. But to me, that is a really important. And again, it's seeing it's it's not compartmentalizing. It's the opportunity. How do they behave? You know, when they're on the soccer field. How do they behave from the sidelines when their kid is playing? They're all indicators that may not necessarily manifest themselves in the office as to how that person is likely to behave. So really the skills of observation are very key here of being able to observe what people's doing, sit back, see them, watch them, listen to what others are saying about them. Maybe there is a test or two along the way, uh, doing that to see how they respond without actually telling them this is what we'd like you to do. Um, yeah. And, and, but you've got to be able to walk closely with them to see those kind of things come out to play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it reminds me of the other thing that um, a lot of CEOs are fired for moral reasons, not for technical skills. You can teach the technical skills, but their character is very key and essentially you're looking out for their characters, what you, you've been saying. Absolutely. And 
you know, in countries where these sorts of values have not been taught, um, you know, that they're real issues to that have to be considered. Um, and we're, you know, we're really careful on the other side of that as well, not to put a stumbling block in front of someone when they are not equipped as yet to be able to deal with some of those things. So this is a really, I mean, anyone who has children knows this. I mean, we make the mistake often, but, you know, we either never give our kids any sort of responsibility or we're the opposite. We give them too much responsibility, thus creating a stumbling block. In a sense, it's not their fault. And we, we learn this in our projects, especially when you're preparing successes, is that you have to be really careful about not putting expectations on them when they are not yet morally equipped. They'll, they'll get there, some of them, not all of them, but you can't expect them to be able to, for example, handle money effectively if they've never been given the opportunity to learn basic budgeting yeah. and learn how you 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 know you you've been involved in i think crown ministries yes the, these are really important things that don't come naturally you know these sorts of aspects of serving they don't come naturally i'm sorry robert greenleaf yes <laughs> <laughs> but these are things that are nurtured into people yes um, and it's about giving them opportunities, but not giving them stumbling blocks. Uh, it's really important because we've learned in, in places where there's crisis and conflict in particular, people are not, they're resilient to some extent in being able to deal with some of these things, but they haven't been prepared in terms of their character to be able to deal with some of these things that we would just expect you should be able to deal with naturally. So Paul, this is, so we're not just observing. We're also coaching and we're training them yeah. and, and then observing how they go with that as well. And look, I had a, you know, a university lecture. We had a staff meeting yesterday, um, some changes in one of the subjects that I'm teaching. Um, but there came a point where we're talking about something and I thought, you know what, I need to ask a question about this because I really don't know what they're talking about in some respects. And But it was it was a bit embarrassing, actually. <laughs> but then <laughs> what surprised me was when I asked the question, others admitted, oh, thank you, I didn't know that either. You know, so, you know, just having that, being able to have an environment where you can talk about things and admit that you're struggling with something whatever that it may be a procedural thing. It may be a character thing. It may be, I don't know what to do thing, but having a place where there's no judgment, but you can say, Hey, let's work on this together and move forward with it. And yeah. Serving people as they go. I, I think that's why it's important. And I talk a little bit about this in the book that there are, there are some quite, distinct differences between say for example coaching mentoring training and the preparation of a successor or if you like true succession um 
you know, I think there's quite a bit of coaching that goes on um, in, in some organizations, but I think a lot of it is more about training. And I remember having this discussion with a guy called Jeffrey who ran a really fantastic training organization. And, and his response when we initially talked about succession or true succession, you know, who are you influencing? His response is we're training hundreds of people and we're training them really well and they're going out and doing a really good job. And I said, that's not my question. How many people are you personally and directly influencing who could potentially take over? from you and he said well absolutely nobody um and he said i don't think my organization would encourage that and i said so you yeah. you know i said it's not being pedantic about terminology but it's about what's the intention behind what you're doing training people is great it's not producing successes um and even mentoring people is great but in a sense, mentoring to some extent is open-ended. Yeah. Preparing directly true succession actually is an intentional about preparing someone who can potentially take over from you. And that's doing that really intentionally. And it's, so it's important for us to understand some of those differences in what we do so that we don't make an assumption that one, you know, will do the other. Paul, one of the things I think in having this discussion is that the discussion around succession is just not happening. So we're not being intentional about it, where we're being much more intentional about training people or mentoring people, but not in preparing them to, uh, to be successes, which comes up to, as we draw to a close today, the meditation question is, who are you directly influencing as potential successes? Like that is really something to stop and think and consider and ponder. All those words are the same, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the sort of second part to that question is, you know, you might say, well, yes, I, you know, so-and-so what, what I'm interested in. And I ask myself this question. I asked some, some guys that I'm working with in China, this same question recently, because they kind of said, well, yeah, we, we, we are. I said, well, how are you doing it? you know, how are you preparing them? Yeah. Um, and then that sort of stumped them a little bit more because yeah. they're like, oh, well, actually they could be successes, but we're not really preparing them in that way. And I said, well, the two, the two go together. You can't really say you're doing the one thing without the other. And the place to start is to build relationship with them. Yeah. And observe and, and to see who's got the sort of qualities that, um, you know, might be promising for someone who could take over from you in the future. Well, there we go. Thank you so much, Paul. So the question for you today is who are you directly influencing as potential successes and how are you preparing them? Well, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one, one way to just help with a little bit of context is, is to think about someone you know that actually personally inspires you with regard to this question of true succession. You know, do you know someone or can you think of someone 
um, who really inspires you in this way um, because that's what they'll be remembered for. And, and that's my prayer and, and really my heart's desire is that, is that that's what I'll be remembered for as well. And that's one of the passages I think is um, you will be remembered down the track if you put those succession things in place. How often do leaders of previous organizations get forgotten because they haven't had true successes in place? Yeah, it's interesting um, it, because it comes from a verse that really inspired me um, in Psalm forty-five, seventeen. It says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Um, now, that may have a, a wider context, that verse. It could be prophetic about Jesus, some people say. But I think the principle there for me is really important, you know, is that what do I want to be remembered for? Uh, and I would like to be remembered for my investment in people. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Same here. Hey, it's part of us doing this podcast. Well, thank you, Paul. And we look forward to uh, talking again next week.